Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. We're continuing our mini-series on sustainability. On our last episode, we spoke about climate technology. Today, we're going beyond climate to talk about a different area of sustainability, corporate culture. COVID-19 required corporations to do some rethinking, not just around how to operate a business in the midst of a global pandemic and economic recession, but also around how to build culture when the usual ways of working are disrupted. An organization's culture is how it leads, how it manages talent, how it's organized, and how it interacts with its employees. And according to Bain & Company, companies that exhibit a strong sense of culture and inspire their employees are nearly four times more likely to be business performance leaders. Today, Erica Dewan joins us to talk about how companies can rebuild culture and connectivity. Erica is an author, an award-winning keynote speaker, and an expert in human innovation and collaboration. Her most recent book, Digital Body Language, was just released, and it talks about how to build trust and relationships, no matter the distance. We'll talk about which social and cultural factors companies should focus on most, how to stay connected in a digital world, and what will change and stay the same as we return to the office. Then, in the second half, Eric Van Nostren, BlackRock's head of research for sustainable investments, will discuss how, through data and research, we can translate corporate culture into investment insights. Erica, thank you so much for joining us on The Bid today. It's so great to be here. So Erica, you're an expert on connectional intelligence and collaboration. You work with companies on helping them improve their corporate culture. Among your many accomplishments, you've written two books on this subject. So let me start with what caused you to become an expert and study in this field? Growing up as an Indian immigrant in the United States, I struggled to find my voice as a kid. I remember growing up and at home, my parents spoke Hindi, which meant at school I had accented English. In every report card from kindergarten through 12th grade, my teachers often said I was very studious, but every teacher had the same feedback. I wish Erica spoke up more in class. One of the things that I was able to really build because I was so observant is the ability to decipher other people's body language. I would watch the popular girls with their heads high, the cool kids slouching during school assemblies. And it helped me to really understand that it's not about what we say, it's about how we say it. Fast forward, I became an expert on body language and communication. I ended up getting three Ivy League degrees, working on Wall Street at Lehman Brothers. And about four or five years ago, I started to realize that many companies were struggling with the same challenges. Why is there so much misunderstanding at work? How do we better connect with different ages and working styles? And what I found was that similar to the way that I was an immigrant to body language as a kid, today we're all immigrants to how we connect through the body of our language in a digital hybrid and global world. And so my research on connectional intelligence and collaboration really stems from the fact that in today's world, the quality of networks matters much more than the quantity of networks. Having a lot of relationships, having LinkedIn followers, having a lot of emails in our inbox doesn't necessarily lead to measurable change. The key is the leadership skill of how we leverage and harness the power of our relationships that makes or breaks businesses today. Just like emotional intelligence was critical in the 90s, today, connectional intelligence will allow businesses to break silos, 
to unlock new and unrealized value and really create new sources of wealth generation in the future. Erica, you mentioned that connectional intelligence is like what emotional intelligence was in the 1990s. So can you just elaborate on what you mean when you say connectional intelligence? Well, let's start with what emotional intelligence means. It's really the ability to read others' cues and adapt in a way that bridges empathy and trust. Now, a lot of the ways that we built emotional intelligence was by reading body language, the head nod, the smile, the lean in. But in a digital or hybrid world, most of the time, we can't read those body cues. Connectional intelligence is applying emotional intelligence in a digital age. It's about remembering that what was implicit in our traditional body language must be explicit in our digital body language. Reading messages carefully is the new listening and writing clearly is the new empathy. Well, it's interesting, you know, the transformation of communication to more digital sources, that was definitely there before the pandemic, but it certainly was accelerated by COVID-19. But, you know, when we talk about sustainability, we talk about environmental, social governance factors and how companies have to think about these. A lot of our discussion recently has been around climate change and how companies have to adapt. But talk to us a little bit more about the social factors. What are some of the social factors and areas of corporate culture that companies are focused on today? In today's era, it is no longer just about the individual and it's no longer just about the organization. It's about the collective. And when it comes to social factors, businesses have an opportunity to supercharge the interconnectivity of different stakeholders to really unlock new environmental and social value. Let me give you an example. Ben Thompson is a surfer and he's also an engineer. And one of the things that Ben Thompson realized is when he would surf out on the waves, he hated the sludge in the water. And he thought to himself, what could I do to really help be involved in climate change solutions? So one of the things he did is he created a sensor that surfers put under surfboards that track the salinity, acidity, and temperature of water. Now, this is actually being used by climate change researchers to develop and identify data that they weren't collecting in the past just off the shore of oceans. So here's an example of the interconnectivity of the climate change community and the surfing community in ways we may have never imagined before. Businesses have this same opportunity. They can reimagine collaboration across stakeholders they may have never interacted with before. They can bridge connections between different communities, public, private, and government in ways that will allow us to all elevate together. So Erica, you make a compelling case for the importance of collaboration. And you've said this term, the collective. Has our ability to collaborate gotten better or worse since the pandemic started in 2020? Well, Oscar, in the last year, we have seen more disruption in how we work, yet more innovation than in perhaps the last 10 years. What I have seen across organizations is poor behaviors pre-pandemic got amplified. They're more noticeable, terrible meetings, bad emails, and good behaviors also got amplified. I believe that this is a moment now many months into our digital shift to not simply adapt to the new normal, but more importantly, create a better normal. This is a moment to ask ourselves, what has actually been more creative, more inclusive, more transformative in how we've worked since our digital shift? And what are lessons that we want to make sure to include from our digital shift as we go back to hybrid work? I'll give you an example. I'll never forget pre-pandemic, I was on a conference call. Three of us were remote and three people were in the office. 
it wasn't until the 26th minute of a 30 minute meeting that someone in the office said, does anyone on the phone have something to share? We had been excluded the entire time. So the last year has actually taught us maybe we can be more geographically inclusive, less visually biased if we use the power of connectivity in smarter and better ways. And this kind of brings up the point that employees at companies are really demanding more of the companies they work at. They want more inclusive work environments. They want more flexibility. They're asking companies to be more involved in the communities that they operate in. So what else are you seeing in terms of some of these shifts that employees are asking from their companies? We're seeing a massive shift in new opportunities and how we work and how we choose how to work and how flexible work is and also who can be included in work. Before, I think we often thought of the traditional notion of balance sheet talent, who's in the room, who's in the office, is who can contribute. And now I think the question is much more, what is the problem we're trying to solve and how can we engage anyone anywhere? to be part of the solution. I'll give you an example. A few years ago at a leading toothpaste company, Colgate-Palmolive, there was a scientific issue. A group of chemists were trying to figure out how to mix a new fluoride into their toothpaste, but there was a mechanical flow problem. The fluoride was getting stuck in the equipment. All the best chemists were trying to figure it out and no one could solve it. Finally, one teammate said, why don't we ask a different network? They posted it on an online scientific community. A physicist on the platform solved the problem within 48 hours. Now, the team of chemists at Colgate learned a few things from this experience. The first thing they learned is that they hadn't even asked the physicists at their own company how to solve the problem because they labeled it as a chemistry problem. The second thing they realized is that physicists that solved the problem would have never been hired by Colgate. He didn't have the traditional resume. He didn't want to work at a large company. But in today's age, They could access and engage expertise far beyond traditional business silos in ways that generate the best solutions. So in today's world, I think the biggest opportunity that I'm seeing businesses have is this opportunity to reimagine work, not only traditional talent in a room, but who can contribute anytime, anywhere. And the more businesses are able to identify solutions to enable individuals to contribute across silos, beyond their job descriptions, beyond even their businesses to other non-traditional networks, the faster, the more innovative, the more creative we'll be as we stay relevant in the future. Erica, that's a powerful example that you mentioned there. How much is it reliant on senior management to send the message to collaborate more and reach across to parts of the organization that you may not be thinking about? And how much of it is bottoms up, grassroots, which it sounds like in this example, it very much was these individuals who took it upon themselves. When you talk to companies, what's really driving that collaboration? More the top down or more kind of the grassroots? For collaboration to be sustained over time, it needs to come from all ways, top down, bottom up, and even sideways collaboration. I truly believe collaboration often gets caught up with, okay, this means more emails and more meetings, but collaboration is actually about reducing dysfunctional meetings, ending endless reply-all emails. It's about identifying places and spaces across silos where people can come together to all benefit versus one group. And most importantly, it has to be role-modeled at a senior leader level to generate long-term solutions. And I'll sum it up with one other example. One leading law firm based in New York City noticed something a few years ago. They noticed that their youngest associates were billing less hours than ever before. And when they dug into it, 
they were first a bit concerned because law firms bill by the hour. But when they researched and identified what was going on, they realized it was because these associates had created their own peer-to-peer virtual network to help each other solve cases faster. Outside of clunky reply-all emails and endless calls, they were sharing information in real time, like a SWAT team across silos and practices. Now, the senior leaders could have said, this is actually hurting our billing hours, stop doing this. But they actually asked themselves, what can we learn from the youngest employees in our organization? And they created peer-to-peer virtual networks at every level of the company. Today, one of the most powerful peer-to-peer networks is a senior hire network of leaders who have come in from competitors that are now a digital knowledge network of competitive intelligence for the entire company. So just as it's important for all of us to role model these skills and not just make it top down, it's also critical that senior leaders are listening across their organization to those unusual suspects, not just those with the traditional job descriptions around new work practices that will benefit the business, customers, and clients moving forward. I'm reminded of the saying, work smarter, not harder, when you talk about the example at the law firm. So this feels like a good time, Erica, to ask you about your latest book titled Digital Body Language. So tell us a little bit more about it. How did this title come about and what's the synopsis? Research shows that 60 to 80% of our face-to-face communication is our nonverbal body language, pacing, pauses, gestures, tone. But body language hasn't disappeared in a digital or hybrid world. It has just transformed. And just like I shared earlier, I was an immigrant to traditional body language as a kid. I realized that today we are all immigrants to digital body language. That was really the impetus to write my new book, Digital Body Language. And I will sum it up with one client story that I think will remind us all how important this skill is. I was coaching a senior executive at a Fortune 500 company. We'll call her Kelsey. And Kelsey came to me because she got some feedback from her team through a 360 that her empathy was weak. Now, I started to first look at all the traditional markers of subpar empathy poor listening skills, a lack of eye contact, a lack of engaging with her colleagues. And I realized that Kelsey was actually brilliant at all of these things. She asked thoughtful questions. She leaned in. She had good body language in a room. But while her traditional body language was excellent, her digital body language was abysmal. She would send brief, low-context emails, causing her team to feel anxious, not knowing what they needed to do. She would take other calls during existing calls, multitasking, making her team not feel valued visibly in their work. Most importantly, she would often in conference calls give individuals high level feedback, but with the lack of body cues, they didn't know exactly what to do next. What we realized is in today's world, everyone needs a rule book. They can't rely on body language as the clutch. We need to master digital body language to create cultures of empathy, trust, and collaboration, no matter the distance. That's fascinating. Are there examples of the opposite where somebody is actually better at digital body language than they are at the in-person body language? One of the most powerful things that I've heard from clients, especially in the last year from our digital shift, is how much more bosses are hearing from introverts on a team in digital mediums versus face-to-face mediums. And I've heard the same thing from introverts. Now, what I think has been so exciting about the digital ways we are communicating is how much more inclusive we can be of different styles. So I'll hear introverts who have told me, in an office, I would fight for airtime. 
it was hard because I would have to manage my traditional body language. But in a virtual medium, I can share in the chat. I don't have to turn take. And I'm able to find my voice in a way that I was never able to find it in the office. Another example are simple things like the lack of body cues that are enabling certain individuals to find their voice even more in meetings. I'll give you an example. I know one team lead who has a very deep accent. He's from Buenos Aires and English is not his native language, but when he works with all his New York colleagues, they're talking very fast and it's difficult. He's found that Zoom closed captioning has allowed him with a transcript of what individuals are saying in real time to stay in the know of what everyone's saying and to be able to engage much faster than what was available in the past. So in many ways, digital body language is minimizing many of the traditional body language biases that often allowed extroverts to get a voice more than introverts, that often allowed those with cultural barriers to not be as heard as much And lastly, it is also minimizing gender biases. Instead of being reliant on body language cues of a gender of who's the majority in the room or who's taller or who has a deep voice pitch, we are focusing more on the quality and substance of content. And I think that that is something that is so powerful as we move back to hybrid work and how we can create more inclusive workplaces. Erica, we've talked a lot about the shift to a more digital world, more digital communication. So how are companies having to adapt to this to ensure that employee satisfaction remains high? In my research and my work consulting clients to build cultures of sustained collaboration, one of the most common questions I got was, why is there so much misunderstanding at work? I've seen many companies create directories or descriptions or subject matter expertise networks so that different team members can break silos within the organization when they're not at the office water cooler anymore. The second challenge that leaders have had to adapt to is drops in productivity. And one of the things that I've seen that leaders have done to manage satisfaction is to truly measure in success, not in hours or FaceTime, and measure outputs, not just inputs to work. The third key factor is decreased innovation and creativity. And what I've seen here that has worked really well is reimagining how we design virtual meetings. I like to say in today's world, team members need to think less like office meeting hosts and more like TV show hosts, where we have to bring people in in different parts of a discussion and also create effective innovation and asynchronous engagement That could mean having virtual whiteboards, using the chat tools so that everyone can share in a discussion and then calling on people that have different or diverse perspectives. There's a few more challenges that leaders have had to adapt to and manage in these times for employee satisfaction. One of them is work-life balance. Leaders need to set and communicate expectations and enable that culture of trust and accountability and what that looks like. Another one is Zoom fatigue or virtual meeting fatigue, identifying and clarifying explicitly what are the right collaboration tools to minimize fatigue and setting some boundaries around work life when it's appropriate to respond urgently to an email and when people can actually wait and have meeting free boundaries. And last but not least, the imbalance of career progression based on location, based on whether your boss really prefers remote versus in-person is a big challenge as we move forward. And so many leaders really need to set up performance management expectations to avoid bias of those that are remote and that won't be face-to-face moving forward. And when it comes to satisfaction, 
I think it really is about three things. One is valuing your teams visibly now, valuing their time, their inboxes, and their schedules. Secondly, it's about communicating carefully about expectations and norms moving forward. And third, it's about creating that culture of confidence through effective role modeling and setting up performance expectations that allows everyone to contribute in a way that they're valued for their work, not just for their face time. Everything you've described is corporate culture, right? It is what it feels like to be an employee at a particular firm. And before the pandemic, corporate cultures were largely created in an office, and now they're being created or maintained in a more digital world. So I'm just curious, can corporate cultures survive or thrive in a purely digital format? Or does it really mean that people have to go back to an office for the corporate culture to stay strong? I would challenge, Oscar, that corporate culture is built in an office. It is not built in an office. It is built by the leaders in the culture. It's how they show empathy, trust, engagement, accountability, and how they truly say what they do and do what they say. And it's also the rituals and boundaries that define how we engage with one another. So I think a lot of our default mechanism was things that we did in the office showcased who we were, our badges, the quick office water cooler chats, the meetups in the cafeteria and how we said hello, the happy hour discussions. What we actually have to do now is reimagine the rituals, the boundaries, the definitive language and norms that showcase our digital culture. For example, I've seen teams that set up simple things like meeting-free Wednesday mornings. We create strategic time to focus on thoughtfulness versus constant meeting culture. We've seen other companies create simple things like audio call Fridays, no video, almost like the new casual Fridays. We've seen other teams do things like set some rituals at the beginning of meetings, having everyone share what's one win of the week, what's one challenge of the week, to create that level of psychological safety that often happened by reading body language, but can happen when we are explicit, when we don't assume others are okay, and when they can share effectively. All these adaptations that you talk about, I have to imagine there are some companies that believe, look, this period shall pass. 2020 was an aberration. We're going back to the office. So let's get back to the way it was. Do you see companies doing that? And what's the risk if they don't adapt? What I would say is important is that we all need to take the lessons of the last year and really ask ourselves, what has worked better because of the pandemic? I'm not promoting remote anywhere, anytime at all. I think that there are places and spaces where we really need to come together for intentional work in a room together. I actually think the last year will enable us to be more intentional about how face-to-face office work is important and how we'll use it to be even more thoughtful. So I remember, you know, especially as someone who was an investment banker, the traditional office culture was we would all get in, we would be back-to-back on meetings. We weren't always thoughtful about the agendas in the meetings. They would start seven minutes late. Oftentimes, there was no note-taker summarizing the meeting at the end. In the next meeting, we were talking about what was discussed in the last meeting. My goal is that we won't revert back to terrible behaviors when it comes to collaboration of the past, simply because we liked seeing each other face-to-face. Instead, my hope is that in the future, because of the lessons of the last year, we will reimagine how will we really use that face-to-face interaction more intentionally. Another thing that I truly recommend now is to have a live meeting host of a meeting and a remote team host. 
So remote team members actually lead parts of the meeting to avoid that visual bias. And most importantly, I think that this time of change will hopefully allow us to be more geographically inclusive of individuals in a way that will actually change the perspective or the strategy moving forward. I don't believe that high-performing organizations are all face-to-face all the time or high-performing organizations are all remote all the time. This is a moment to define the new norms focused on what will best serve the business. And one other thing I'll say is I know many clients who work in the financial services industry where their clients are preferring virtual-only relationships. They don't want to commute to try to meet. They would really prefer regular video calls once a month instead of quarterly meetings. And so this is an opportunity to lead the way with your clients and actually adapt to their digital body language preferences just as much as your own. We've talked a lot about companies and those that you consult with, and you've given some great examples. I'd like to bring this back to you. How are you staying connected to the people around you? And what did you learn from writing digital body language that you're applying now? I started working on my new book, Digital Body Language, four years ago, well before the pandemic. And this was a time when video calls were the exception, not the norm, when really the primary format of how we communicated digitally was emails and conference calls. We were still communicating digitally about 70% of the time in workplace communication, especially even on the same floor, in the same office. Today, that's just shot up to 100%. What I have learned is that in today's world, especially with the digital shift of the last year, our digital body language is now reshaping our physical body language. I didn't expect that, but we have spent a year online. We are more likely to want to get to the point quickly, to have prompt meetings that start on time and end on time, to want to hear the bullet point summary from someone instead of having a long, robust 40-page deck We've been reading emails for a year, so we want people to get to the point. So to really sum it up, what I've learned is that this is the moment to not go back, but to go forward. And it requires us not to default to behaviors or revert back to what worked pre-pandemic, but to ask ourselves what will allow us to transform, stay relevant and competitive moving forward. Erica, thank you so much for your thoughts today. It's been nice talking to you digitally. I hope uh, one day we get to meet in person as well. Thanks for joining us on The Bid. Thank you so much. That was Erica Dewan, author and keynote speaker. Next, we'll talk to Eric Van Nostrand, BlackRock's Head of Research for Sustainable Investments. He'll talk about how corporate culture translates to stronger outcomes for businesses and investors through the lens of our own research on the topic. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Oscar. So, Eric, we just spoke with Erica Dewan about the importance of corporate culture and how the pandemic has made areas like employee satisfaction, digital connectivity, really important things for companies to consider. But corporate culture is harder to quantify, I think, from an investment perspective or how you make investment decisions based off of it. So tell us a little bit about how you're using big data, technology, to try and really zero in on, I guess it's the S in ESG. It's a great question, Oscar, and it's really a specific manifestation of a general phenomenon and problem in sustainable investing right now, which is that I don't think the non-climate elements of sustainable investing have gotten quite as much attention in the market discourse as they deserve. There's been a lot of focus on the data and analytics around climate and E-related investing, as you put it. 
But sustainable investing has to be about a lot more than that. And this element, in my view, this S element, the social element of ESG, is really the next frontier for sustainable investing. It's harder to do, I would say, overall than climate-based investing because the data is not nearly in the same place as we see on the environmental side. But I think that presents a tremendous opportunity for investors who are willing to do the hard work of using the big data analytics and various quantitative strategies to really parse what data we do have and start deriving insights about the social elements of the way companies operate. That's really unexplored territory right now. And when you say the data is not in the same place, does that mean there's not as much of it or there is a lot of it, but it's not as robust and harder to draw conclusions? All of the above. There's less data, there's less standardization of data, and there's less confidence in the investment research community over how those data are going to affect financial returns in the years to come. But again, that's not a reason to move away from social investing. That's a reason to move into it and seize the opportunity to start answering those questions more clearly. So it seems intuitive that companies that have higher levels of employee satisfaction are going to have better company performance. And Erica talked about how right now companies have an opportunity to really turbocharge employee satisfaction. And there's numerous ways. There is, for example, the way companies interact with their communities that could be a way to have employees be more engaged and more satisfied. But when you think about this social aspect, corporate culture, employee satisfaction, are there certain factors that you look at a little bit more closely? You zeroed in on one of the most important transmission mechanisms in S-investing, which is that we think companies that engage better with their employees, that have happier employees, will tend to outperform, not randomly, but because those employees display higher labor productivity, they produce more per unit of effort they're putting in, and that creates more cohesion to the firm and more long-lasting value creation. We've been working on a number of investment strategies that try to really quantify that phenomenon and zero in on it. In one particular context, we look at employee reviews that are placed at online on various websites and run natural language processing on those reviews and get a sense of the sentiment, tone, and specific topics that employees like to talk about when talking about their employers. And we find a robust relationship between companies that have happier employees according to those reviews and companies that generate their own higher labor productivity. We think the market eventually rewards that. So we're starting to use that alternative data source, scraping this text online to help us figure out who's going to outperform by having more engaged employees. Right. And just on that last point, when you're saying outperform, you think the employee satisfaction leads to better company performance, meaning investment performance. If I'm an investor and I identify companies that have done this better, the S part of it better, things that you've isolated, it leads to better investment returns. Yeah, it's a two-step, like you say. It's the immediate S phenomenon, which is that the employees are happier, drives better near-term financial results for the company. The company's being more productive with happier employees. The employees are producing more. And then as the markets come to realize that, they reward them for the better financial performance. By looking at who has happier employees today, we can get ahead a little bit of the better performance companies are going to have in the long term. And that's what we're trying to execute on. So what's a more specific example of how this comes to life in an investment process? Yeah, so sometimes, Oscar, I think the S in ESG, which we normally define as social, might actually be better defined as stakeholder. Because what it's really all about when we do S investing 
is we're looking at the broader set of stakeholders, not just shareholders, not just other investors that a company interacts with and how a company's relationship with those stakeholders is going to affect their eventual financial performance. The employee reviews I mentioned are one specific example of that, but there are others. We're also focused on a company's relationships with its community. And this is a little harder to do on the data front, but again, we're using alternative data, sources involving text and photographs and such to get a sense of the impact that various companies are having in the communities around them. Because we think that companies with healthier relationships with their communities are also poised to outperform better because they can deliver better for those communities. It isn't always apparent when we look at historical returns over the past couple decades. And it's important for us to be forward-looking in terms of how we flesh out some of these relationships. But that's really where the action is, I suppose you could say, on stakeholder investing today. And are there other social factors out there that we don't fully have a grasp on yet? Yeah. So I think this is an area that is really ripe for an explosion of data and an explosion of data standardization, to go back to where we started the conversation, Oscar, because that is what's going to allow investors to get a more holistic picture of a lot of these newer elements to the sustainable investing conversation. We're going to be able to use traditional investing tools as well as newer tools like various ways of processing alternative data to help us identify those impulses. And that explosion of data is what we think is really going to bring the market to this sort of work. So you've described an environment where the ability to do the S investing, as you talked about it, you said the S stands for stakeholder, is evolving The data is getting better. It'll only get better in time. And so the ability to draw investment insights will get better. Climate must have been that at some point as well, where it was a bit in its infancy and the ability to now do more climate-oriented investing is better. What's next? What's in the future when you think about this area of sustainable investing? Yeah, that observation, Oscar, I think really speaks to what's special about sustainable investing and what differentiates it from traditional work. In some sense, we're not solving for anything new with sustainable investing. We're still trying to use the data we have to identify strategies that will produce satisfactory risks and returns for our clients' needs. But what's really special about sustainable investing is that we don't have the historical basis for a lot of the investment theses we're deploying today. That's true in climate. It's true in social. It's true in governance. We have a forward-looking thesis that as the carbon transition and greater social awareness and a more acute focus on corporate governance come into play over the decades to come, these companies that are doing well in these metrics are going to start to outperform more. You're right that climate is ahead of social by a couple years in this regard. And what climate has shown us with the explosion of data in that field over recent years, it's provided a bit of a blueprint for how we expect social to evolve. But I think what's really next is we're going to move beyond just thinking of S as one thing into a much more multifaceted set of investment hypotheses and specific transmission mechanisms that matter for investments. We're going to be focused on corporate culture and what that means for investor outperformance. We're going to be focused on diversity, equity, inclusion, and how that relates to a company's ability to serve its broad constituencies. And as I mentioned up front, we're going to be focused on a company's engagements with all sorts of stakeholders, from its customers to its employees to the communities in which it operates. That holistic vision of sustainable investing is what's really going to move the needle in the years to come. Eric, thanks so much for joining us on The Bid. Fantastic to be with you, Oscar. On our next episode of The Bid, we'll talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion with Carla Harris, 
Vice Chairman of Wealth Management and Senior Client Advisor at Morgan Stanley. We'll see you next time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523-BIMAL. 230 The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.